Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us. If you would, open your Bibles to 1 Kings, the 11th chapter. I want to mention a verse out of John, the 4th chapter, by way of introduction, but then we'll spend quite a bit of time in uh, 1st and even a chapter in 2nd Kings tonight. So uh, we'll have several of the passages on the slides, but we will also be reading a few passages before and after each of the ones on the slides. So uh, you might want to open your Bible uh, tonight, especially since there'll be several verses that will not be on the slides. And if you are using a pew Bible, that will be on page 313, where we'll begin in 1 Kings, the 11th chapter, on 313. The Lord continues to bless us so richly. As uh, Buddy gave our financial report this morning, we are reminded of the many ways that God blesses us on an annual basis here. You know, the only way a congregation can give back a million-plus dollars a year is because God has given a lot more than a million-plus dollars to us. And it's it's awesome mark for us to measure God's blessings when it's the first time as a congregation we've ever surpassed that million-dollar mark. And then when we look at the facility that He's given us and how most of that debt has been paid off, and yes, we still have a little bit, and we still have a great responsibility and obligation towards the future. But let's not ever forget to thank God for the many ways He blesses us, not just as individual families, but but as a church family. He's so good to us. Friday we had about 25, uh, 20 of our young people and five to six adults go to Evangelism University. Now, if you're not familiar with Evangelism University, it's kind of like a lectureship all weekend long where our young people, Friday evening, all day Saturday, Saturday night, and Sunday morning, they sat in classes and, and keynote speakers that are themes uh, about that of evangelism. And we are so thankful that they have an interest to go and to be a part of that. We're thankful that that opportunity is available to them. 1,400 high school students, not counting the adults that would have been, I guess, several hundred adults, 1,400 high school students came together in Savannah, Tennessee for this event this weekend. And it's awesome to think that there's that many young people, plus a lot more, that are excited about the future of the Lord's church, and they believe in a heaven, and they believe that they want to take others with them. Also, we're thankful for the success of our ladies' breakfast that they had yesterday morning. Um, Annette Moore did a tremendous job speaking, I am told. That is the report that keeps going around. And uh, we are thankful for the great plans and, and for the great success of last year and the great anticipation of next year or this year for our ladies. And we appreciate and love you so much for all that you do uh, in, in the work here at Mount Juliet. The Flannery's Baby Shower is exciting to think about adoption, and we're thankful for them and the joy that they have as an addition in their family. In John, the fourth chapter, there's just that little phrase that it's easy to read it as a simple little phrase, but yet when we stop and say, but wait a minute, why? It's that phrase where Jesus had just convicted the woman of her sins, identifying the fact that she'd been married several times, and the one she was with now is not even her husband. And it's from that that she summarizes in 19. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. But then notice John 4 and verse 20. She says, keep in mind, she now believes that he truly is a prophet. There's been this stirring for ages about what is the right way to worship? Where's the right place to worship? Maybe she sincerely believed 
Now is the opportunity for me to get to the bottom of this. I've been wondering it long enough. And she asked in 20, or makes this statement, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. But note that phrase. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. When I was a child, I played around creeks and springs almost on a daily basis. I've probably thrown about as many rock into water as anybody here. I've watched a many of the ripples across a little spring or a larger creek or even into a river. All of us have done that. But will you for just a moment envision in your mind one pebble, but the ripples go on and on. When we drop an action that moves us away from God, where can we put an end to that ripple? Just answer that in your mind. If I choose not to worship God the way that He has taught me to worship, and I drop that action into life, where does that ripple stop? Does it stop with my children? Does it stop with my grandchildren? Does it stop six generations down or twelve generations down? If I sow a seed of sin in one area of life, would it affect future generations in many other areas of life? Tonight, I want us to look at some stories that God wanted us to know. They're recorded in His Word. And what we're going to do is put these stories together so that we can see at least a glimpse of at least a part of the answer where this woman says, this is what our fathers always did. Our fathers, now think about that, our fathers said we were to worship in this mountain, but I hear you Jews saying something else. What is the right answer? You may be surprised where we can begin, and really we might could even go back further than this, but there's an obvious beginning. And as we begin here, you might say, I don't really understand why we're beginning here, but as we look at the next story and the next story, I think it'll become clear. Now, our primary, primary objective tonight is just to put these stories together. That's the sermon. Now, along the way, we're going to make some brief statements of application, and I hope that we will take those this week and really apply those to our life. But keep in mind, we're making the great application at the beginning of when I drop a sin into my life, I can't expect that I'm just going to put a little barrier around that and there's not going to be a ripple very far. It may affect 950 years from now. Oh, that could never happen. Well, she speaks of them worshiping in this mountain. Back up with me, if you will, 950 years, and let's go to 1 Kings, the 11th chapter, and let's see a decision that a man made. We could back up a few years prior to this, and we could read about this man, Solomon, making one of the great decisions in his life. The God, Almighty God, offered him a wish, and in that wish, he didn't ask for old age. He didn't ask for the, for the life of his enemies. He didn't ask for great riches, but instead, Solomon said, I want an understanding heart to be able to judge the people. And God was so impressed with a man that wanted wisdom from God that God granted him that wisdom and went ahead and gave him the long life and the riches and even the life of his enemies. Now we see this man introduced to us in the Scriptures as the wisest man that ever lived. 
But yet in his old age, we see him doing something that it almost makes us scratch our head and say, did I read that right? The wisest man that ever lived, did he do this? And then it ought to be a wake-up call for all of us that we never reach an age in our life where we avoid temptation. We never reach an age where we could make a turn that many people around us would say, I might have expected somebody to do that, but not them. Let's begin reading this. I'm going to read in verse 1 and 2, and uh, then we're going to see 3 and 4 here on the screen. We're in 1 Kings, the 11th chapter. King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidians, and Hittites, from the nation of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel. This is key right here. The Lord said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. How dangerous that phrase is, in love. I want to urge our young people to realize that because you're in love is never a good enough reason to get married. There's a lot of people that have gotten married in love that had no business marrying each other. The wisest man that had lived up to this time is a perfect example of this. He thought that he could justify his relationships with these people that God had clearly said, absolutely, do not be involved in this relationship with these individuals, with these ladies. Do not intermarry with them. But he justified it because, I'm in love. He was clinging to them because of his love for them. And notice verse 3. And he had 700 wives. Can't imagine that. Princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. A terrible statement. In his old age, the wives are turning away Solomon's heart. Verse 4, For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. What a sad occasion this is. And I want to skip down now and read 11, 12, and 13 so you can see what the Lord says because of Solomon's departure from him. Verse 11, he says, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. David dropped some action. Sexual immorality. Open defiance to the will of God. God clearly said, do not intermarry with these people. Where was it going to stop? It's my body, I'll do with it what I want. It's my relationships. I can have them if I want to have them. And actually, Solomon's action was the beginning of the divided kingdom. His sexual immorality led to the divided kingdom. Up to this point, there had been one kingdom. Twelve tribes, one kingdom. Now his son Jeroboam, his son Rehoboam, was to be the next king. But there's another individual that we need to bring into the scene, and his name is Jeroboam. And so if you are reading with me in your scriptures, I don't think we have this one on the slide, but we'll read further in the same 
chapter, in the 11th chapter, beginning at verse 26, we read about Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He was one that went out with brand new clothing. And in verse 29, it happened at the time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way and he had clothed himself with a new garment, and the two were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and I will give ten tribes to you. Now when Solomon hears about this, he is so angry for the fact that someone else other than his son is going to have the majority of the kingdom and only two tribes is going to be given to his son that he actually wants to take the life of Jeroboam. And so Jeroboam has to flee and that's the way we see the verse uh, 39 and following. Uh, the way this chapter ends. But I want us to notice something, and, and you'll just have to kind of put this one in your memory as we'll pick up on this point a little bit later. But while we're here, let's go ahead and notice this. So God, speaking through His prophet, is telling Jeroboam, look, you're going to have the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, what we oftentimes call in the Scriptures Israel, the southern kingdom, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Uh, we usually call uh, the tribes of Judah the southern kingdom. And so He's telling him, you're going to have the northern kingdom. Now, listen how simple this guidance is that he gives him. Verse 37, So I will take you, and you shall reign over all your heart desires, and you shall be the king over Israel. Then it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways, and do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. Now that's powerful. The Almighty God says to him, Look, you're going to be a king and I'm going to give you success. Just obey me. It's that simple. Now in a few minutes we're going to find out whether or not he was able to achieve that even from the first day. Amazing, sad story that becomes. But now we need to see one story in between. This chapter ends, 41, 42, and 43, with Solomon dying. Of course, as Solomon dies, naturally Rehoboam will be the one, his son, that will be brought in as the next king. Now, most of us are probably aware of the fact that Solomon had a tremendous kingdom. That kingdom did not come free. That kingdom came about because heavy taxation of the people, taxation of money, and taxation of labor. And the people wanted to make a powerful statement to the son Rehoboam. And the statement was simply this, You lighten the load that your father has put upon us, or we will not follow you. In other words, it seems in the Scriptures that they loved Solomon, but they despised the fact that they were taxed so heavily for all of this success, so to speak. And so they weren't going to do it for another generation. And so the question now is, what's Rehoboam going to do? Rehoboam first turns to the elder advisors. 
In other words, advisors that had been advising his father. And he asked them, what should I do? Their advice is that, well, let's read it. It's beautifully stated. It's in verse 7. And I don't, I'm sorry, I don't have a slide for that, but the next reading we'll have a slide for. But if you're in the 12th chapter, 1 Kings, the 12th chapter, notice how beautifully they stated this. They spoke to him saying, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Now, if we want to talk about leadership skills, this is a powerful lesson in leadership skills. At this point, the people needed to be heard. They had a very fair argument. They needed a leader that was going to show compassion upon them. They needed a leader that was going to communicate that compassion back to them by his actions. But instead... He also says, I'm going to turn and I'm going to ask some of my younger advisors, some of the ones I grew up with. I'm going to ask them what they think that I ought to do. He gathers what their advice is, which their advice is, and in our language today, it would be something like this. You think my father was hard on you. You haven't seen anything yet. I mean, literally, in other words, that was the advice of the young men. Now the question is, what's Rehoboam going to do? Is he going to act out of humility as a strong leader and serve the people? Or is he going to act out of pride and says, I've got to bow my, my back and I've got to pull my shoulders high and I've got to prove to them who's boss here? Because after all, I'm the new king and they have to know who's king here. Let's read what he says. We're beginning in verse 12. We're in 1 Kings, the 12th chapter, and verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king had directed, saying, Come back to me the third day. In other words, he told them, You give me three days and then come back and I'll give you an answer. So now here's the answer he's giving the people. Verse 13. Then the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying... My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, I will chastise you with scourges. So the king did not listen to the people. For the turn of events was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his words which the Lord had spoken by, a, uh, by Ahijah the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. The result of this was immediately the ten northern tribes, they said, we're going to follow Jeroboam. And as we read on, we see that in verse 20, he became the king over Israel. Dropping back to verse 17, we see that Jeroboam, I'm sorry, Rehoboam, reigned over Judah. Now, there's a problem here, though. Where were they to worship? Jerusalem was the holy city. Now, if up to this point you're saying, how are we working toward John the fourth chapter, in which mountain that our fathers worshipped in this mountain, but the Jews say Jerusalem? Right here is where it all starts coming together. The northern tribes did not have access to Jerusalem. Where were they going to worship? Could they just go down 
to Jerusalem? That would seem fair enough, unless self-centeredness came in the way. Now, I want to remind you the passage we read just a chapter earlier. You remember God saying to Jeroboam, if you will just obey my statutes, keep my laws, follow my commandments, I'll give you an enduring kingdom. All he had to do was obey God. How is he going to begin from day one? This is what astonishes me about this story, this part of it. From day one, how is he going to begin? The poor old northern kingdom that began in sin from day one and the 19 kings, all of them continued in that same sin. They didn't have one good king. They didn't have one good day. 200 years and they were over. The Assyrians took them into captivity. But let's see how it happens here. We're back in verse 25 now. We're still in the 12th chapter. And notice what Jeroboam's dealing with here. Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also, he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. You see what he's dealing with here? I know what God's told me to do. God's told me to keep the law, keep the statutes. God would want these people to go down to Jerusalem and worship. But you know what? If I let them go down there and I let them worship at Jerusalem, they might hang around the southern kingdom long enough that they might want to start following Rehoboam again. I can't take that risk. I'm not going to let that happen. I'm not going to let the people obey God anymore. What are you going to do, Jeroboam? Now, he doesn't say it in these words, but in other words, the next few verses, he says, I'm going to come up with a new God. The next two verses, he builds two calves, and he places them throughout the kingdom. He says, I'm also going to come up with the ones that's supposed to lead this. Keep in mind, under the old law, the priests were only to come from the Levitical tribe. He chose priests from any tribe. He also, of course, had to choose the days that he was going to worship. When we look over in the 32nd verse, it says, Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month. Now, the feast that he was trying to emulate was a feast from God that was in the 7th month. But you see, he's not trying to keep God's law. He's not even trying to worship God at this point. Notice this phrase, and I don't know if this stands out to you, but from a man that grew up worshiping God, it is amazing to me that these kind of phrases could be used. I want to read to you a phrase out of 28 and then another phrase toward the end of verse 32. When he made the two calves of gold, in 28 he says, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. See, he's, he's talking to him now about convenience. That would just be too hard for you guys to take that kind of trip. Here, are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Can you imagine that? Hey, I had these gods made for you. They're really the ones that brought you out of slavery, your people out of slavery. Or notice in 
toward the end of 32, he says, So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. Isn't that sick? You're sacrificing to what? To the calves that he had made. He had made. He made their God. He made the way that they would worship their God. He told them things that the Almighty God did and gave credit to an idol. A major drop of action into life. How far is it going to ripple? Now keep in mind, the only reason they had this divided kingdom was because of Solomon's immorality. Because of Rehoboam's pride. I'm not giving in to you people. And now, because of Jeroboam's self-centeredness. Let's fast forward 200 years, and we're going to 2 Kings, the 17th chapter. And this will give us, this story here will be the wrap-up of this. 2 Kings, the 17th chapter. In 2 Kings, the 17th chapter, we now are at the end of that 200 years. And you know, we talked about that, that dropping that pebble or that action, and how far does it ripple? Well, notice as we begin reading in 22, this is 200 years from the action of Jeroboam, and notice who's mentioned here. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of who? Jeroboam. Isn't that interesting? We're 200 years now past Jeroboam, and what is being mentioned? They just kept doing things the way Jeroboam did. He invented this God, or in other words, he created this God, this setup of idols, what a sad thing. And now 200 years later, it's still living on. And he says that Jeroboam, which he did, they did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is to this day. Now the prophets that are mentioned there, contemporaries here could have been Hosea, Isaiah, and Micah. Now let's begin reading in 24 here, and let's notice what happens as Assyria takes over this area, takes over the ten tribes. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Zephyrvim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possessions of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know, now notice this phrase, the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and indeed they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Then the, kings of Assyria, then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, 
Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there and let him teach the rituals of the God of the land. Now there's two or three things that we need to point out here of interest and also to help better understand the story. Assyria was a powerful empire at this time, gaining power all the time. And they were the type of empire that were courageous warriors. Uh, They were robbers. They looted. That's how the empire gained its wealth. And so when they would go in to destroy a nation, they would move the people and scatter them into other parts of their nation, the ones that they didn't kill. Then they would take all of their goods and they would use them to their benefit. Then they would take, in order for the land to still remain productive, they would take some of their citizens from other parts of their nations, of their empire, and they would move them back to that location. In other words, so all the ones that that was home are moved out, now other people are moved in. Now, we think of terrorists. They definitely worked as warriors off the concept of terrorism. Not only were they warriors that were very powerful in destroying, but they destroyed in a way to make all of their enemies afraid of them. In other words, they were the kind of warriors that would skin their prisoners alive. They would cut off their ears, their noses, their fingers. They would pull their tongues out. They would make huge mounds of skulls. All of this in an effort to terrorize their enemies. God stopped protecting Israel because Israel never served God. He allowed 200 years to pass and He allowed them to be handed into the hands of Assyria. But now, there's something here that ties directly into this story. They believed that a God remained in a land. Did you notice that? The people had been moved away. Other people had been moved in. And their idea is, with these lions eating us, we need to know how to appease to the God of this land. Well, what are we going to do? Well, the king, and it sounds like from common sense, it sounds like good reasoning. Let's just go back and let's get one of their religious people, their priest, and let's get him to come back to this land and let's let him teach the people how to appease their God. Now, you already know the problem. They weren't worshiping God as they should to begin with. That's the way the kingdom started out was in false worship. Now, they did follow, in a form, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. That's why when we fast forward about 750 years to the time of Christ, standing there in Samaria, talking to a woman, she would have understood at least an aspect of the law of Moses. Because you see, this had been passed down for generation after generation. And so what the priest did was that he came back and he taught them things that they needed to do that fulfilled the rituals that Jeroboam had taught them that also had a fashion of the law of Moses. There was really, scholars say, about 2,000 changes in the Samaritans' Pentateuch and Moses' Pentateuch. But nevertheless, they took, and we'll read a verse here in just a moment to see this, and they blended that old way of Jeroboam's and their paganism. 
Let's read this. We're now in verse 32 and 33, and then we'll skip down 40 through 41 just to see a summary of these things. Still here in 2 Kings, the 17th chapter. So they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places, who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. Skipping down to 40 as a summary of all this. However, in other words, God was urging them to obey. If we read 37, 38, and 39, now here's a response that they were not going to obey in 40 and 41. However, they did not obey, but they followed their former rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images. Also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. Where did the Samaritans come from? Well, we've just seen the story. If we want to take it back far enough, they come from Solomon's immorality. They come from Rehoboam's pride. They come from Jeroboam's self-centeredness. And they come from a poor old ignorant Assyrian king that says, I don't know what else to do. Let's just invite one of these priests back and maybe he can tell us how we ought to worship. And 750 years later, there is a woman that her and her religion has been born of all of that that says to our Lord and Savior, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. I'm a fool. If I think I'm going to sin... And, it's ha- and it will not have any ripple. Most of us would probably be shaking in our shoes if we knew the potential that wrongdoing could have on generations and on decades and on centuries. I have no doubt in my mind what we choose as a congregation to do. Whether or not we choose to stand soundly on the truth of God's Word will have an effect on the community of Mount Juliet for hundreds of years if the Lord wills time. Friends, doing right Submitting to the Almighty God is so much more than just about our own soul. But it's going to affect so many thousands. Let's do the right thing because we love God. Let's do the right thing because we love our own soul. But let's do the right thing because we love the thousands that we won't ever meet, but it will impact their life. Tonight, if your life isn't right with God, isn't a blessing that He gives you this opportunity tonight. The opportunity to plant an action that will ripple for years and years and generations to come. If you've never been baptized into Christ, won't you do that tonight? What a wonderful opportunity we have. If you've gotten off path, what a wonderful opportunity to say, I'm going to stop 
that path, and I'm going to come back to God's path. I want to confess sin. Let's pray forgiveness. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.